awesome. And I just had a, a couple more thoughts I wanted to, to, to finish up, to wrap up. I feel like our last couple of questions maybe were a bit hurried, but before I did that, did anyone else have any comments or questions about the first 11 verses of chapter 2 of 2 Corinthians? Yeah, Chris. Yes. So what does that mean? What does that look like in the physical? I mean, right. For example, I mean, you ask the question, say we got you know a treasurer who is caught embezzling money at work or whatever. It's like, okay, he repents, we reaffirm our love, and here, count our money. Here's all the money, right? Yeah. So you see, how, or does this not even apply to? I think it could. I mean, yeah, I'll just kind of answer this uh, from my own perspective. The way that we see these, these brothers respond in chapter 7, there's a variety of things that we see them doing when they've come to a grief and they want to repent. They go to these great lengths, what zeal and um, says in chapter 7, verse 11, what earnestness this godly grief produced in you, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what zeal. So I see on their end, they're doing whatever they can to make sure that, that they're bearing fruits worthy of repentance. Um, I think we, as those who are called to forgive and show them love, we need to do whatever we can to help them. So maybe they're having trouble with greed and with theft and all of that. It's not to say I'm never going to trust you with money ever again, but would it be wise maybe to make sure that there's another someone there with them counting the money? There's some accountability to help them in that. Maybe they're struggling with some kind of an addiction. I'm not going to say, well, I doubt you'll ever get over this. I don't trust you anymore with drugs or alcohol. or But are there things that we can do to help that brother to make sure that, that not that I'm going to check up on them, I'm now your parole officer, but I'm your, I'm your brother, I'm your sister, I'm, I'm here to help you and, and make sure that together we can help each other not fall back into that sin. Is that, and that's the loving thing to do, right? I don't want to see you fall again, right. and, I, and I hope that you'll do the same for me. Just saying there is a difference in this reaffirming love and total acceptance of anything. I mean, there, there are consequences. Sure. Yes. Yes, you see what I'm saying? I do. So I don't know that this passage is necessarily addressing that that aspect of it. We can certainly love the person and we can, you know, accept them back as a brother, but those consequences I don't think are addressed in that. Is that right? Yeah, at least yeah, at least not right now or not here. Um, I think sometimes we have a mistaken identity of what repentance is. 
we wish that repentance is, I say I'm sorry, you forgive me, and the consequences have suddenly disappeared. That, that's not always the case sometimes. Sometimes we do need to, to, to carry out and, and live out the consequences of, of those bad decisions. Um, yes? A big aspect of love is doing what is necessary, even if it includes uh, reprimand at times. But the thing is, we don't dwell on the past. I mean, we know what he's done, but we don't hold that against him because God does it. Yes, and... and uh, yeah, yeah, I'm sorry. You have to prove yourself in situations like that. And there are uh, consequences. Uh, you know, like somebody that gets caught hacking in a computer may never be able to touch a computer again, uh, according to their uh, sentence. Well, would you put them in charge of AB and computers here? You know, you've got to take those things into consideration yeah. as well. Uh, and one part of love is, is, I don't think you're ready for that. You talk about it. It's, you know, you do what you can to help that brother get to heaven. Yes, and, and what we saw, <clears throat> excuse me, what we've seen, uh, again, what we will see in chapter 7 is the one that is coming with a, a humility and a zeal to clear themselves, a repentant heart. Um, Boyd has often said, uh, the sinner doesn't get to make, uh, how, how does he word it? Uh, they don't get to dictate the terms of their repentance. I'm going to come back, and I expect you all to do these things for me, and that's the only, that's the only way I'm going to come back. Well, no, we don't get to do that with God. And so if someone is truly repentant, they're, they're going to do whatever they need to do to make sure that, um, that this is taken care of. Um, yes, Micah. A couple of thoughts on this. Uh, in verse 12, it talks about, let's, or, uh, verse 11, excuse me, let Satan should take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. We, we give Satan a victory if we're too harsh, or if we're too lenient. Yes. So, so, so there are consequences. We've, we've already established that. However, withholding love is not a consequence. Correct. That, that is something that we must establish is that uh, we are strengthening or making the love firm. Absolutely. Um, and so, and, and that's really hard because if I'm offended, if somebody can sin against me, I want to be the one who's reaffirmed. I want to be the one comforted. But I'm commanded to comfort the offender. I'm commanded to mm -hmm. reaffirm love for them. And so do I force them to repent and do things my way? Or do I or do I forgive as God has forgiven me? So. Right. Yeah, thank you. Uh, Jesse? I'm probably just re reiterating a lot of what was said, but um, I, I really like that video that the show about, I think, Rosario uh, Butterfield when it talks like she was a lesbian professor in the church. The way that they handled her uh, on both ends of the spectrum, like she made a point to say they didn't want to just package me up and, and get it all clean and forget about what happened, but they also didn't want to put her in a position where they thought maybe um, it could be a temptation or something like that. So it was kind of this dynamic approach um, where the person is self-aware. Yes. <laughs> had this thing, it's a part of my past, it's something 
Yeah. And I'm always hesitant to say, okay, this circumstance, the, it's X, Y, Z. You're going to do this, this, and this. But we are commanded here to, <clears throat> excuse me, to reaffirm the love. How do we define that term? He just did it in 1 Corinthians. What is love? Love isn't always only ever telling you the thing that makes you feel good. That isn't love. Sometimes love tells you the hard things because I want what's best for you. And so reaffirming their love means not always just making sure that your feelings never get hurt, but reaffirming your love is making sure that I'm doing whatever I can as your brother or sister to make sure that together we can be pleasing to God. Yeah, Alan. And it says in verse 9, for this is why I wrote that I might test you to know whether you are obedient in everything. And everything what? And reaffirming your love. Why? So that he's not overcome with excessive sorrow. He is sorrowful at this moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, all those things that you know, nobody necessarily be tempted by. It's true. But he is so sorrowful. Don't let him become so excessively sorrowful. Be there love him. Why? It's commanded. Right, because if he can't find <coughs> love and, and reaffirmation with you all as a church, where is he or she going to go? Look, they're probably going to go back to the thing that they thought was satisfying before. And that's, that's what Satan wants. That's, that's certainly not what Christ does. Yeah, John? I remember Pax having a really good philosophy before about forgiveness is more about our return, like the one who's been wrong about our internal feelings about it, right? It's like, don't harbor ill will or anger. It's you show love. And then like you were saying, that doesn't always mean that you just act like it never happened, right? Like it's it'll happen and maybe consequence to that, but the key is we're doing it out of love. We're we're the that is the emotion that we have and we do it in a way that they can feel that. They they understand that we aren't angry or all that. Yeah. And I hope this doesn't trivialize it, right? My kid takes one of their toys and uses it as a weapon and harms their sibling. You shouldn't do that, and they feel sorry. There are tears. They say sorry. The kid who got whacked in the head forgives them. Would it be wise of me to take that toy and give it back in their hands? You know, they've done it ten times before. Or would, at least for now, I take the toy away from them and say, until you can show me that you're not going to whack your brother or sister with a Lego sword, um, I'm going to take that away. Is that unloving? No, I think unloving would be to continue to facilitate that because the person who keeps getting whacked, now that's not loving to them, is it? Again, I, I hope I'm not trivializing that, but if they have a reoccurring issue, is it, is it loving for me to keep putting themselves in, into that position? Um, awesome. Man, Sunday mornings, you guys are awake and ready and we're, we're going to do this. So let's, uh, let's try to get into uh, chapter... Uh, Chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. If you'd like to open us with a word of prayer. Yeah, just one comment before All of all people giving this history would appreciate forgiveness. Yes. And appreciate those who could look beyond their past. Yes. Okay. God, Father, we're so thankful we could be here together. We can open your word. We're thankful, Father, for the Holy Spirit who worked through Paul to uh, give us these words. Father, plant them deep within us. Help us to examine and consider your ways, your will, your wisdom for each one of us. Help us, Father, that we would look beyond ourselves and look around us 
See those who are struggling, who are hurting in this life, and give them hope through the knowledge of the salvation we have through Christ. Help us, Father, that we might live the love that you have for us to others. Uh, Father, we are so thankful for Christ and his willingness to come to, to earth to show us God in human form, to show us your grace living among us. And Father, help us to follow his example and do the same. Help this class to encourage us in that and to be profitable to be with Craig and be with the other teachers as, as they lead us in these things. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Um, do we have uh, someone willing to read verses 12 through 17 of 2 Corinthians chapter 2? Thank you, Micah. <clears throat> Furthermore, when I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel, and a door was opened to me by the Lord, I had no rest in my spirit, because I did not find Titus my brother. But taking my leave of them, I departed for Macedonia. Now thanks be to God, who always leads us in triumph in Christ, and through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one we are the aroma of death leading to death, and to the other the aroma of life leading to life. And who is sufficient for these things? For we are not as so many peddling the word of God, but as of sincerity, but as from God, we speak in the sight of God in Christ. Thank you. <clears throat> so as always, just kind of want to ask some of these general questions as we consider this text. What, what stood out to you? Um, what here kind of reminds you of, of other portions of Scripture? Uh, maybe what questions do you have? Let's start with those. appreciate that. I, uh, I don't mean to correct you. It's the same fragrance, right? But it's being received in two different ways. Okay? The gospel isn't, isn't different for each it, They're different. They're receiving the word in a different way. But you're right. To some, it smells wonderful. It's very appealing. This is what happens when I let my kids smell the ground coffee that I've just had in the morning. Avery thinks it's amazing. Ethan, oh, he doesn't want anything to do with it. I'm trying. Like, I really am trying hard. It's the same coffee grounds. There's nothing different about it, but the recipients are, are understanding it and receiving it in a different way. Yeah, Josh, or John. Um, interesting to me in the last verse there that there were already peddlers of God's word. Yes. <laughs> it's like, I think they get us kind of a modern problem sometimes, but I mean, it kind of reminds me, 
Peter's warning about false teachers, too. It's like, it, it happened pretty quick. So Gary's kind of, I don't know if he know a lot of what sorts of things were going around. I know there's, you know, hosticism and that sort of thing. But. Yeah. And, and he, t- he comes back to these kind of individuals throughout the letter. I think there's more going on there than just th- they're doing it for the money. Um, but that was certainly a temptation. Is hey, I can present something and enough people like it, I'll make a pretty penny off of this. Yeah, Alan. I was struck by 13. My spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. Uh, the extreme love that he had for Titus, the closeness that he had, the working relationship that he had with him. And then he would go into the fragrance there. Uh, my one way he would find Titus would be by seeing in the community the results of Titus's work, uh, maybe finding him that way. But that it's, it's interesting that he just went from one to the other. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, and we'll, we're certainly going to talk a, a bit more about Titus. He is a prominent character in this in this letter um, and in the New Testament. Yes. to verse 15, how our lives are like a Christ-like fragrance, um, and then what other people perceive differently. Again, just to remind you not to be too occupied or preoccupied with what people think, even people that you just love and respect so much. If, if you are in line with God, you're great. Just leave it in. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Uh, yeah, there is a tendency, uh, and social media and other things only uh, amplify this. We want to put out things that we can get the most likes and the most reactions to, right? I want everyone to love everything I ever say, and that's, that's an impossibility. And we know when we present the whole truth of the gospel, there's going to be quite a bit of humanity that doesn't want to hear that. And so not being like, I don't care what anyone ever says, and I don't think that's what you were saying. But if, if, we're, if we're looking at God's word and we are simply reflecting that, some people are going to like it and some people are not. And that needs to be okay with us. Uh, yes? I just see this big thing of in Christ. Mm-hmm. And like Jen said about the security and the, just, that's a great place to be regardless of um, anybody else's viewpoint. And then in Christ, the doors open. Your spirit is stirred. Mm. Father, uh, God leads triumph. right yeah and he finishes this this section in 17 he said look i've been commissioned by god to do god's work to present a a message that is from god and through jesus um this isn't about me right i'm doing this on behalf of christ and i'm i'm magnifying his word to others yeah man keeping with the same thing this fragrance it's interesting because for paul especially being a jew this would have um his old life reference as well Mm -hmm. of him being a scholar in the old testament 
and the idea of the sacrifice and how God always said sacrifices were a sweet aroma. Right. I think sometimes for us, it may be a little more difficult to try to understand exactly what that maybe have meant to them. But I mean, this is a term that God used all the time that He wanted these sacrifices because they were a sweet aroma. And He's taking that concept of that philosophy and applying it to the New Testament or applying it to the kingdom as well that this is part of our sacrifice. Mm -hmm. Our sweet aroma to God, and um, it also comes in play um, for us as well, so that we can hopefully enjoy that sweet aroma and that fragrance of God. Yes, and I absolutely believe that He's hearkening to that. I think there's also something even more that He's doing uh, with that idea of aroma, and we're going to talk about it in a little bit. So, yes, Alan. In contrast to she talks about sincerity. Sincerity, as you may know, is from a word that would have to do with the pottery. And putting the pottery together in such a way that there was no wax in the cracks, the wax in the hole, holes, uh, that the warm water would then cause it to be insincere. So a sincere pot was one without wax, without holes. Hmm. So we are to be sincere in our speech, sincere in Christ. There's no faking it. No faking it till you make it. It's got to be sincere without holes, without limits. Absolutely. Absolutely. I guess, yeah, Tim? Uh, what stood out to me, and this is the triumphal procession, mm -hmm. which I'm uh, reading, and, you know, if we're following Christ, if we are being led by Christ, it doesn't matter if what people are thinking about us, because the fragrance goes out, and it's, like you said, uh, the, you know, those that are hearing it, if, we're, if we are being led by Christ and saying Christ's uh, words, uh, then it doesn't matter what people think about that. It is triumphant. Yes. And we're going to talk about that term as well. I'm, yeah, we'll get there. We'll get there. Hang on. Um, so let's, uh, let's talk about Titus a little bit because he's mentioned here and he's going to be mentioned. Um, he's actually mentioned in this letter more than any other uh, part of the New Testament, even in the letter that Paul wrote to him. And so, uh, what do we know about Titus from this, this letter? What, what can we determine specifically about his character or about uh, what, what Paul thought of him? Jesse? It's certainly a good sign that um, when, when Paul is working with this individual, um, he's optimistic, he's refreshed, he's often looking for, for the, the good fruits of his work and He's looked at very much like a, a very strong companion, like a good working uh, individual that he probably felt uh, a familial uh, relationship. Yeah, and he, he certainly did. Here in, in verse 13, he talks about him as his brother Titus, right? So there, there's this relationship here that's, that's personal. Um, and uh, yeah, he, he was anxious to hear from him, right? So we know that he had, he had sent uh, Titus. Titus had wanted to go to the Corinthians to find out how, how they were doing. Paul's last interaction with them had been harsh and hard. This letter had come to them, and he wasn't sure how they were going to respond to it. And he trusted Titus to bring back a report, right? And not sugarcoat it, it seemed like. He wanted to know sincerely how they were doing. Um, what else do we know from, from this letter? Yeah, Bob?
he was so close to Titus that his concern and worry over Titus uh, kind of overshadowed the open door that he could get. Yes. And, and so, you know, here, here's a, a blessing. God has given an open door. You know, this is what he looks for everywhere. He asks people to pray for him that a door be open. And he is so concerned about Titus that it's difficult for him to even deal with that. Yes. And, and so show, that just shows how close. Yeah, yeah, and I appreciate you bringing that up. In verse 12, he said that an open door, uh, a door was opened for me in the Lord. The way he's used that term in the past is that a, a, a good, potentially successful evangelistic opportunity was right in front of me. And Paul says, I, I, I couldn't go through that door. I was so concerned about Titus, but specifically about the message Titus would bring about his Corinthian brothers and sisters, right? Yes, Micah. Um, in chapter 7, 8, you see him being referenced again. Yes. Um, in chapter 7, verses 13 and following, you see not only the relationship between Paul and Titus, but, about, but Titus was really invested in the Corinthian church, that uh, he, he was built up and edified by how they received his, his message. Uh, and... He was encouraged by that. In chapter 8, you see him uh, referenced a couple of times as being uh, one of the people who uh, helped with this ministry of this collection. Uh, how he was, he was tasked with making sure that they brought it to fruition and that he was going to be one of three people that, that sent it along uh, to Judea. Yes. Yeah, so, yeah, you brought up all kinds of things. He, he's mentioned as Paul's partner in chapter 8. He is, uh, and we use this as an example, he's someone that could be trusted with money, right? Potentially large amounts of money over great distances, right? And this individual could be one of those trusted with that. Um, he did. He's listed as having a deep affection for the Corinthian Christians um, and that Paul's spirit was refreshed and, and made full of joy um, by the coming of, of Titus. Yes, Mike? Yeah, I think that's from 7 to 6. It's interesting, my version says that um, as God comforts, Titus comforted Paul. Mm -hmm. I thought it was interesting because Paul opens this letter talking yep. about how God comforts, but then I think we see in Titus how God, one of the ways God comforts is by he sends comforters. Yes. And Titus is a comforter for Paul. Yes. Yes. And he mentions in chapter 12 and verse 18... <clears throat> They're near the end of the letter. He said, I urged Titus to go and sent the brother with him. And he asks these kind of rhetorical questions. Did Titus take advantage of you? Did we not act in the same spirit? Did we not take the same steps? And he's basically through these rhetorical questions saying, look, Titus and I are on the same mission here. We are of the same purpose. And so the things that I want for you, Titus wants for you. Um, we are... Um, we are united in spirit and in pur purpose. Um, he's mentioned several other times through the New Testament. Um, this is an individual, even though he's not mentioned in the book of Acts, we can surmise uh, that potentially Titus was, was there with uh, Paul um, as he uh, came back to Jerusalem in Acts 15. Um, this was someone who was a brother and a partner um, and dedicated to the same work. Alan. Just a question. Do we have any idea of his age and in the faith of age? 
Uh, no, uh, we do know that he was a Gentile, um, but yeah, we don't have an indication of his, of his age. Yeah. So let's talk about this, this interesting term. Back in chapter 2, verse 14, But thanks be to God, who in Christ, I'm reading from the ESV, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. Does someone have a, a different reading of that? Okay, in Christ's triumphal procession, I think, does anyone have an NIV or something akin to that? Jamie, what does it say? But thanks be to God who always leads us in triumphal procession in Christ and through us spreads everywhere the fragrance of the knowledge of Him. I'm trying to find the version, I can't remember. Does anyone mention prisoners or slaves in their translation here? In verse 14, there's some of the older translations that would do this, right? Captives. So what it seems that Paul is alluding to is not, I think, what we have in our minds. What do we normally think? We think triumphal procession, and I think we're halfway there when we do this. This is a, a conquering king. This is someone who has uh, found victory in battle. They're returning home, and they're walking through the streets, and they're getting praise from the people. And, and we're, we're halfway there. I, I think that's right. Keep in mind, this is uh, the first century. When you think of armies coming in from victory, you're talking about the Romans. They're the ones who are doing that right? You know, during this period of time. But they would, the Romans, have a very specific triumphal procession that they would work towards as a Roman commander that would occur in the city of Rome. So if they had a particularly successful battle, and I, I read somewhere, I, I couldn't find a, a verification of this, but I read somewhere that they had to have at least defeated 5,000 enemies. That they would be led through the streets of Rome through a very particular path that would end at one of their idolatrous temples. And along the way, you've got various peoples in this, this parade, this procession. You've got the generals, the captains, the people who had led the army. And they're being given <coughs> obvious praise and accolades um, for that. You've also got the aristocrats, the, 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 the politicians who helped perhaps finance that or taking credit for the battle, they're part of this parade. You had priests of their various idolatrous gods and goddesses who had incense burning, and we're going to get to this in a moment, incense burning, wafting an aroma through the streets of Rome on their way to the temple. And you would have captives from the battle. You would have the leaders, those who survived, the leaders of that army that had just been defeated, and those who had participated in the battle. And I couldn't find a consensus. Some commentator said that they were at the front of the procession so that they could receive the jeering and the insults for as long as possible. Um, some say that they were at the back. But they were in this parade of people on their way to their execution because they would end the parade 
by executing those prisoners in front of all the people of Rome. Paul uses this term, triumphal procession, and the only other time he uses this term, he uses it in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 15, where he says that Christ disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. The term is used to to describe, this verb is used not to describe that we are participating as victors in this parade, but we are actually participating as the slaves, as the captors in this parade. So Paul is not saying, I'm up there with the generals. I've, you know, I've experienced victory and I'm coming with the generals to receive all the allocates. Paul is actually saying, look, a true apostle... Those of us who are called to do this, we are the prisoners receiving the jeers of the world on our way to our deaths. Which is why, throughout Paul's epistles, he calls himself a slave. He calls himself a bondservant of Christ. He calls himself um, a captive of, of Christ. And so he's saying, we as Christians, we are not doing it for the praise of the world. We're doing this so that Christ will eventually, we're not told that we get the wreath now, but Christ will eventually give us victory. He will eventually glorify us. But while we're here on this earth, we're being paraded through Rome. Knowing that that we will experience hardship Christ said to pick up your cross and follow me. Come with me to your execution, as I did. And that's how we achieve victory. Bob. Paul, he refers to this in 2 Corinthians 10, 5. He says, we are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of God. Of Christ, and how that fits in with this idea of this is a a public display. In other words, the changed life is manifest before the eyes of those who look upon it. Right. And, and Paul is saying, uh, you know, saying the same thing in a similar way in Second Corinthians. There, so throw that in there. Yes, absolutely. The the allusions to death, putting to death, therefore, the old man. Right? I am crucified with Christ. This is not a new concept he's introduced. He's saying, I, I'm, I'm here to remind you of your place in this procession. Unlike these false apostles, unlike these teachers who are trying to do it for their own self-interest and gain financially and, and for power, he says in verse 17, they've got, themselves, they've got themselves in the wrong part of this procession. A true apostle is one who recognizes where he stands in this procession, and what is, is expected of him. Uh, yes? Is it also maybe appropriate to connect it with Christ's triumphantry, and when he was coming into Jerusalem, he was not coming, he was coming as a conqueror, but he was coming to die. Correct. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, Christ came into the city of Jerusalem on a, on a donkey. It wasn't a horse. And the people thought he was coming in to get a crown and receive the kingship. Christ knew he was on his way to his death. And so we are to 
emulate Christ and, and do the same thing as we live on this earth. Alan. And another thought here, he disarms the rulers and authorities and puts them to overstand by triumphing over them in him. So even though to be the prisoner, even though to be the one to be martyred, he triumphs when all Right. We were trying to define the word irony to our kids on the way this morning. <laughs> that has nothing to do with getting the wrinkles out of Irony is when the opposite of what you expect happens. And then we started talking about what's a cruel irony. Christianity is ironic. And I mean that with no disrespect. They expected, once we put this man, Jesus, to death, we're going to be done with this. And what they didn't realize, the irony of it, is his death was actually the thing that God came to accomplish. And we're going to stick him in a tomb, and we're never going to hear from him again. They didn't realize that the tomb and the cross would then become symbols and images of us in our victory. And so you're absolutely right. Yes, we are going to our deaths. We are allowing ourselves to be crucified in Christ. But we know that that's actually how victory is obtained. Isn't that a cool picture? Yes. Luke. Yeah, to the point about the triumphal entry, I, I think that's a good point because he's coming in as a triumphal king. Even though he's going to die for his kingdom, he's going to offer them a gift. And if you read Psalm 68, it refers to a similar picture. It says, You have taken many captives. That sounds pretty similar. You receive tribute from men, even some corrupts. So that's that picture of that trying to paint. Paul loses Ephesians 4 verse 8 and changed the direction of the gift giving. Okay, and there he actually refers to, he says, when he ascended on high, captured captives, that's on the first like Psalm 68. He gave gifts to men. So he's actually shifted that direction of the gifts. So I, I think that picture actually fits with the trying to fit in there too. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, uh, yeah, Phil? Chris, the New Century version reads, But thanks be to God, who always leads us as captives in Christ's victory parade. God uses us to spread his knowledge everywhere like a sweet-smelling perfume. Our offerings to God is this. We are the sweet smell of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are being lost. Thank you, yeah. There, are, there really only were a couple of translations that included that captive or that prisoner idea. Um, but to me, it, it was convincing. The only other time this verb is used, he uses it that way. Right? So thank you for that. Let's use that as a transition because I want us to talk about this, this concept of aroma. So the, the aroma, the fragrance, he says in verse 14... It's a slightly different word than what our English translations say as aroma that he uses through, through the rest. But the, the aroma in verse 14 is the knowledge of him, right? So we are, we are spreading to the world the, the fragrance of the knowledge of Christ and him crucified. That, that's what they, we want them to know the information. We want them to know the story of Jesus and what that means, right? And we're spreading that to those around us. But we read in verses 15 and 16, and we alluded to this earlier, some people are going to smell that and be very attracted to it. That's, that's good news for them. I, I like the way this sounds. You're saying that someone came and died for my sins and he rose again, and that's, that's very appealing to me. 
But you've got to understand, I was trying to find a modern day equivalent, but you've got to understand, in the first century, if you said, I follow a rabbi who was crucified, they would think, are, are you crazy? I learned under the tutelage, I would say, of a man whose life was ended in the electric chair. And you would say, and? To say, I preach Christ and him crucified, that, that doesn't smell very good. And you want me to follow you in that? I, that stinks. Many would say that that's not something that's pleasant or appealing. I think we've got Bob over here. And yet he equates these two responses. How does he describe those who want it and receive it? And how does he describe those who don't? Next to the example of this is Christ himself. Uh, he gave the same message everywhere that he went. Some all. Some tried to kill him, and some did put him to death. Yeah. And so the same message, but the different way that they received it, or refused to receive it. Yeah. Uh, someone said the gospel will either make you better or bitter, right? Here, he says, it, this is a matter of life and death. Depending on how you receive this aroma, we're, we're talking life and death here. There, there's no middle ground. You're not going to go, oh, you know, it smells all right. It, it's going to be something that you either really want and you see the value in, or it is going to be detestable to you. Uh, was there a hand over here? Yep. Oh, he's coming. He's almost there. this in so many different realms, right? I would love to stand on a podium and wear that gold medal at the Olympics. I am not willing to put forth the effort and the years of training to do any of, any of that to get there. But we, that's very attractive to me, the podium with the gold medal. Uh, we just came back from a, a homeschool convention. We were there for Appian Media. And we get these, these families who are like, I'd love to go with you on a trip. And it's like, no, no you wouldn't. You don't, you don't know. Would you like to spend eight years of almost solitary confinement? Eight years, eight months, it feels like eight years. Eight months of solitary confinement as I edit the thing? You don't actually want that. But we think we do. We want the victory, right? Yeah. Jesus saves me and I get to be exalted together. with. But are we willing to put forth the sacrifice and the, and the, the effort to give up so much so that we can gain? Yes, Michael. A couple of quick points. In verse 14, I'm challenged by what the fragrance actually is. Mm -hmm. um, 
diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. Um, I don't think I'm doing a good job of that. Uh, what, what do I diffuse uh, to the people around me? What message am I living out in my life? Uh, that, that's something that we are called to do, and we're called to be fragrance. What do you do with fragrance? Or with this incense, you burn it and you pulverize it. That's how you get the fragrance out. You hmm. beat it, you break it down, you burn it. Um, and, and you see that in the Book of Acts. You see the you see the followers, and and to to the point that several have made the false teachers, the false teachers would have avoided that. Mm -hmm. and, and we see that um, contrast being made in verse 17. Yes. Um, but to truly see who the conquering king is and want to be a part of it, that's what we're called to do. Yes. Wow, that is the first bell. All right. Let's, let's move on here a little bit. So what, what he's saying, and I appreciate that, Micah, very much. What he's saying is, you know, we are putting off an aroma. And I do, uh, you are right that the sacrifices, the animal as it burned, is described in the Old Testament as something that gives off a sweet-smelling aroma to God. But so was the incense on the altar of incense. And we don't talk about it a lot. The Bible doesn't actually talk about it a lot. But have you ever been in a fairly small room where incense or something like that is burning? It fills up the room quickly. Uh, there are some sites that we visited when we've been over in Israel, and you step into that space, and it is, it is overwhelming if that incense has been burning for long. When you think about the tabernacle or the temple, that altar of incense was burning nonstop. It was not to go out. So you step into that tent or into that structure and you're not going to miss it. It's going to be potent. And if you're there with a heart humble to God, you're there recognizing that, as, as hopefully they did, that his presence was there. You smell that and equate it with God and you love it. But if you're not familiar with what that is, what it's supposed to signify, you step into that space and go, whoa, this, this, is, this is too much. What are we giving off? What aroma are we giving off? And let us not be, as Paul mentions, he's, he's mentioning briefly here in, in uh, verse 17, but he's going to be throughout this letter giving us more of an idea of who these individuals were that he's, he's thinking about and talking about, these peddlers of God's word. I believe that these individuals through this letter, we're doing it for monetary gain, but we can also see that they're doing it for the power, for the authority that was gained to them by that position. That's why they're trying to undermine Paul's authority. He doesn't love you. He doesn't care about you. Look at us. We're doing these things. In what ways might we be tempted to peddle God's word? To peddle God's word for benefit to ourselves? Well, I can easily figure out what would be appealing to all of you and say only those things. And if enough of you agree with that, then I get the power, I get the prestige, maybe I get, you know, a few dollars in it. But Christ's gospel should never be that, where I'm only giving you the things that I know that you'll love and accept. It would have been easy, and there's so many examples of this, but 
in the letter that Paul wrote to Titus, he says in Titus chapter uh, 2 and verse 11, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Yeah, amen. I preach it. Who doesn't want that? That sounds amazing. Salvation for all people. And I could peddle that message, and I, I don't know that I would encounter very many people who don't want grace and salvation. But that's not what he said. That's not all of what he said. That grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. I'm starting to lose some of the world here, aren't I? I have to control myself? I have to live in a godly way? I have to put away, he says later, all lawlessness? I have to purify myself? We need to present the gospel in its entirety and not simply the parts that are appealing to the world. The aroma of Christ is going to be pleasant to some and, and detestable to others. I'm sorry we didn't get to you, Ryan. Um, maybe you can hold that thought and we'll do it Wednesday night. Um, we're going to be uh, saying a few more things about chapter 2 and then getting into chapter 3 on Wednesday. Thank you all for your, your great comments.